Welcome, beautiful world, to Barbarian Noetics, the podcast dedicated to the human spirit. I'm your host, Conan Tanner. In today's episode, we visit with Portland, Oregon-based artisan woodworker, Jonathan Glowacki, creator of Portland Pepper Mills, purveyor of fine art and exquisitely crafted wooden spice grinders. I have three, and they're amazing. They're conversation starters, they're art pieces, and they grind spice, or coffee, or whatever it is you want to grind. They just grind. It's the daily grind. Hard grinding, guaranteed for life. Uh, You can check out Jonathan's wares at portlandpeppermill.com. And it's spelled just like it sounds, uh, www.portlandpeppermill.com. He's got a beautiful website up with some really nice photos of all of his products and art. Everything is handcrafted. Jonathan is just a, uh, a very thoughtful, creative, mindful person, one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, so real honored to have him on as a guest. And uh, without further ado, I introduce to you, Jonathan Glowacki. appreciate you joining the podcast. Uh, we're going to jump right in, and um, I introduced you already as um, the creator of Portland Pepper Mills, um, and I just want to ask you to describe uh, what the business is to you, and what, in- what inspired you to create Portland Pepper Mills, and what exactly do you, do you make? Yeah, well, so... Like anything, it's it wasn't <clears throat> it wasn't one step, and there it was. It was a long journey that landed me where I am and what I'm doing. Um, at the very roots of it, Portland pepper mills are kind of just that pepper mills, salt or pepper mills. Um, I've put my own twist on the pepper mill. Decided to make the pepper mill, which usually looks like a bedpost or a sex toy. into (laughs) a really beautiful fine art sculpture um, that can also serve as a really functional kitchen tool as well because it's hard to find a good one. So it's like kind of a standalone piece of art in its own right, uh, but then it also has that functionality as well. Exactly. Yeah, that was the goal. And uh, it's actually like a spice grinder of any kind, right? You can grind anything in them? We can get coriander, cardamom seed, cumin. You know, I just started grinding flaxseed because the flax seeds need to be broken up so that they're absorbed, so they can be absorbed by the body. Um, and Jonathan's uh, pepper mills that he makes are so incredibly effective at grinding that I actually... I wanted to grind up some uh, morning glory seeds to extract the LSA and take a trip at a festival. Uh, LSA is like the natural um, form. It's the closest thing to LSD that nature creates. It's found in morning glory seeds and Hawaiian baby woodrose seeds. So morning glory seeds are really small and really hard, like very tough. 
So like first I tried with the mortar and pestle and I couldn't, it was very difficult to get any headway, but uh, Jonathan was so nice to give me a grinder. I loaded the, um, the seeds, little morning glory seeds in the grinder and with very little effort, it's a hand crank grinder in case just our listeners can um, imagine it. It's a hand right. crank and it ground those babies up easy. So, yeah, of so, course it did. Yeah, it's quality, very, very fine quality. Very Ceramics. <laughs> and uh, real quick, um, for people that are listening right now and maybe want to like see for themselves what these grinders look like, uh, would you give the website that they can go visit your business? Yeah, check it out, www.portlandpeppermill.com. And when you put together that website, you hired a professional photographer, right? A professional photographer, a website writer. That was it. Was a launching point, man. I was um, stepping off the edge. I didn't know if it was gonna work or not. Um, I think it was five or six thousand dollars just to be able to launch the site. Damn, you don't do anything halfway, man. And it shows in your art. Like, uh, yeah, the the pictures are beautiful, but really you don't appreciate the, the beauty fully until you actually see it and hold it. Cause there's something about the texture of it being made mm-hmm. of wood and also like the care and the love that you put into it when you create it, it really comes out. You feel it like emanating from the piece. Um, and I think that's cause like, uh, you just, you really like pour your whole heart and soul into whatever it is you're doing, which is a very admirable quality. Appreciate that. Yeah. I, it was, it's one thing, to go and look at something on the internet and it's another thing to have the experience with the object and that was trying i was trying to give some you know give whoever's looking at it an experience just by looking at photos and again it's a difficult thing to do but um i mean they did a pretty damn good job in terms of capturing like the texture of the pieces i think for for like photos they did a really nice job yeah Um, and some of your pieces have the beautiful marbling where it's it's crushed stones and gems. Is that correct? That you marble in? Exactly. Yeah. Using, um, you know, a lot of these pieces are made from subterranean roots because that's where the most intriguing patterns. And I mean, these are the pieces that are holding the tree up and they're very, oftentimes very stressed pieces. Um, and this stress comes out as in really beautiful patterns and there's natural crevices and voids and then crushing up stone and inlaying stone into those voids kind of creates a a really nice mixed media and Um, where do you find uh, the subterranean roots and is there like a specific type of root that you go for right well there's no root store um, sometimes (laughs) not yet (laughs) (laughs) One of my listeners is is right now claiming the domain name (laughs) rootstore.com. I'll be your first customer, please. (laughs) Yeah, so there's no no storefront for it. So yeah, how do you acquire these these bad boys? It was, and and when I started out, it's funny to look back on something and just see the progression of things. Um, When I I first started out, there was, you you know, I had like a scarcity complex around finding enough roots because because they're hard to find and you know first off they take 50 60 
hundred years to grow, right? And so not even a lifetime or more than a lifetime, and then and then getting them. Um, so it was, you know, I'd find one here or there. There's a country boy that knocks on the door and he says, "This is what I got." Or I'm driving, you know, down the road in Portland and I see a tree come out, and the roots usually go to waste. So I knock on the owner's door and ask him if I can have it. Um, but very hit or miss for the first couple years. So when you say you see a tree come out, you mean that like it either fell over naturally or like the owner removed it? Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah, one or the other. Um, and you use like a primarily found wood, is that correct? Or wood that has fallen? I would say it's probably about 70, 30. Um, 70% of it is wood that has fallen or been taken out and 30% is taken out for me. Right on. And there was, yeah. Go ahead. There was, there was definitely a time where I was like, there were, there's one species in particular that, um, I'll buy and then they, then they take the trees out for me. And there was a time where I struggled with the ethics of that. And then I just kind of realized that like, it's not, I mean, we, I tread lightly where I can, but it's not so different than going to Home Depot and buying the two by fours. And the only reason the two by fours are there are because they take the trees out for us all who go by the two by fours. Um, I mean, harvesting trees is a pretty common practice in our day and age. And I, yeah, I like to get my wood or I like to get my trees um, that have already been down, but just the nature of making any sort of business work sometimes requires. (laughs) Right. You need that. You need uh, (laughs) You need that steady um, supply train. Right. Uh, where do you go um, to get the the trees that you actually like? You have taken out for you. Uh, do you know where those come from? They're so they come from California. They come from a place called Porterville in California, um, and it's actually it's it's a nuisance tree that's being taken out. And usually it's taken. I mean, there there's landowners who own hundreds and hundreds of acres, um, and then they will usually end up clearing for cattle and they'll take these trees out and then sell them. What type of trees are they? It's called the California chestnut and it's the root specifically that I use and it's referred to as buckeye. Okay, right on. Cool. And just so for for listeners to visualize, like these are not small objects, these roots. I've I've seen them myself. (laughs) And do, do you also call them burls or am I making that up? You're you're right. So a burl is um, a, a growth, a deformity, and okay. oftentimes the roots have all kinds of burl and deformities in them. Um, but the burl is specifically like a deformity. But then sometimes a burl will grow up high in a tree on the side of a tree. So and burls are. Um like uh, favorable for your art because they have really unique patterning. Is that correct? Exactly. Yep. 
So that's yeah, like, the, it's so cool because it's like, uh, you could say on one hand, it's like this imperfection or accident of nature, but then on the other hand, it's actually like what you seek out for its natural beauty. Totally. And the thing about the burl is, well, so science doesn't necessarily like, we can't, we can't make a tree burl. Like we don't really know exactly why trees burl. Um, all we know is that it's a trauma response to like might be an insect manifestation or um, some sort of fungus. Um, but basically the tr it's the tree protecting itself and it creates this gnarl, this, this burl. Um, and ironically enough, the trauma response is incredibly beautiful. Damn, that's crazy. Um, sorry, I'm distracted right now because my Skype is saying like poor network connection. I don't know what that means exactly, but um, I got you loud and clear. Yeah, I got you loud and clear too. So we'll just continue and I'll edit that part out. Um, okay. So getting back to the size of these burls uh, <laughs> or the roots, uh, <laughs> like they're they're massive. I mean, they're like what, like like hundreds of pounds and like very large. Yeah, some of them, some of them weigh a thousand that I've had weigh a thousand pounds. They're just yeah, they're enormous. I mean, they usually say if you look at a tree, whatever you see above ground is also below ground, um, and maybe perhaps not in the same manner, but like just by sheer volume, you know. And say there's a big root ball, so compact a lot of what you see above ground and put it below ground so you can kind of get a visualization for how massive these things really are <laughs> for real and someone comes like with a big truck right and like dumps them off in front of your house <laughs> yeah <laughs> sometimes it's the most wonderful day because i'm excited about it and then other days it's like oh god now what do i do because then you've got these, these massive root balls like in, in your driveway and you got to like take the chain, chainsaw out, right? And, like, exactly, right. And I live <laughs> in the city and it's 10 a.m. on Tuesday and, you know, Joanne's trying to sleep next door and she doesn't want me running that chainsaw. But... <laughs> the business must go on. It's the market. The market has demands. So it never sleeps. It never ends. Yeah, I have. A, I live in South Phoenix, and I live right next to a um, a granite factory. And so mm. they they cut. I don't know what they make. They but they cut the granite at like twenty four seven. And when the market demands, man, it's like two. It's two three in the morning, and I'll get woken up because it's like this really high pitch like <laughs> sound of like them cutting granite. <laughs> And no. it's like literally like right out my back door. Oh. <laughs> but I'm like, you know, that helps keep the rent low. So whatever. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. So didn't uh, one time, was it was it a root burl or was it another uh, piece of the tree that you had like a mishap with? <laughs> like, didn't it like fall out and like roll into someone's car or something? Oh, yes. <laughs> what happened? Oh. <laughs> It was a rainy, dark, wintry, blustery night at like 11 o'clock at night. I had to leave for the airport at 6 o'clock the next morning. was borrowing a friend's trailer. Um, had just gotten 
three or four big roots, an olive root and a yew root, <clears throat> and had a friend helping me unload them into the driveway, or I have a little section next to the driveway where I put fresh wood on. <laughs> and yeah, one of them got away and found the neighbor's bumper at 11 o'clock at night, and I had to <laughs> leave for the airport <laughs> the next morning. <laughs> oh my God, dude. So did you have to tell the neighbor right then, or did you wait until... Like, did you yeah. still go to the airport? Yeah, I went to the airport. I decided not to wake her up, and, you know, I told her when I got back. and We made it all pretty again, you know, a couple thousand dollars later. <laughs> oh, my God. Dude, that's just the price you pay for the burls, man. Yeah, I mean, these things have a life. For the, they have a mind of their own. They are literal forces of nature. Yeah. <laughs> and so you, like, yeah. you... you your favorite come from the California chestnut? Well, yeah, and you know, part of the reason that that's my favorite is because of the process that I um, go through with them. So these California chestnut trees, and if you look on the website, you'll be you'll get a better picture of what I'm about to describe. But if I were to cut them open when I first received them, they'd, they'd be all white on the inside. And with my obsession with mushrooms and mycelium, um, I have figured out that I can, They in the woodworking world they call it spalt, but basically what it is, it's um, inoculating a fungus onto the root and beginning the decomposition process. And so the this certain fungus begins to um, eat the sugars in the wood and it discolors the wood, and, and sometimes it's very dark black, and sometimes it's a little bit more blue. Um, but the patterns that the fungus creates over eight to ten months is incredible. And so, and it just adds another step of intrigue to the process for me, um, because it's not, you know, I don't, it's, for me, it's the difference between working with trees. And working with wood, I don't go to the store and buy wood. I, I get a, I get a, I get a tree in, and then have a completely different experience um, with it. And the mycelium, it's it has like a symbiotic relationship with the tree. Would you say? Well, I mean, we have a symbiotic relationship with the mycelium. The and yeah, it's it's all symbiotic, but it's the way Mother Nature turns trees back into dirt, even in the forest. So if you've been walking in the forest and you step on a log and it just crumbles between your, you know, your feet, um, that's the mycelium that has broken it up to that degree and eventually it will become dirt again. And so that's, this is the natural process that trees go through. Um, I'm just intentionally doing it on the pieces that I'm going to work with and then stopping it before the wood fibers become compromised, which is a real thing. Wow, so it's like your art then becomes like a a tangible manifestation of like the relationship between different dynamics in nature and also like the art of of decay and then renewal. It's like got, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. got it's got all that in the story of each piece. That's a good way of saying it. Yeah, and it's not something that can be rushed either. This is a this is a multi-year process. 
Wow. So, like, how much do you have, like, on, on in, like, in your yard? Like, how much is, yeah. because if it's, like, a multi-year process, you, you must have, like, you must have a bunch of, like, all different stages? Yeah. So, the answer is um, too much. Or, <laughs> I guess I'll just say enough. Enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, because it's a multi a multi-stage process that requires years and then the drying phase is another year or two. Um, it requires copious amounts of the wood in, in every single stage. Right. And then I need to be thinking about 2020s wood at this point already. Right. And that's the wood that will be, you know, having the fungus grown on it for two years from now. So there's, there's just so many different things that need to be, tended to and to make this you know you you look at the website and you think oh you know this guy's making pepper mills but like the the behind the scenes and that's just the pepper mills that i'm making that's not even my artistic expression of things well in some degree it is but my fine art stuff um there's so much going on behind the scenes that really requires um my full attention all the time you know, I don't, I don't have children at the moment, but I do have a lot of roots and a lot of trees. <laughs> you have, you have like hundreds of children, and they're all burls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the mycelium too, I would say. Although the mycelium, yeah. I would say, is more like your your brothers. Yeah, definitely. We're pals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fam for sure. <laughs> uh, would you? So, um, you you mentioned the fine art stuff uh is that like your bowls and other creations yeah so there was there was a time where well when i first started making it so technically the difference between there's craft art and there's fine art and craft art is is art define that as you will um that has um, a purpose it does something pepper mill um it has a function it has a function exactly yeah ceramics these kinds of things and then fine art has no function so paintings drawings I mean even some pottery as well just no function I mean the function the form is the function right like uh, it doesn't have a practical function but it is beautiful and so like its function is kind of like its beauty the manifestation of its own beauty and it, for its own sake exactly which is like that's incredible function and you know from my perspective and it's just funny how it, it is you know there is a line that's like even for applications for different various art festivals you know it's is this craft art or fine art? Um, and that line is function, but those lines are all blurred for me anyways. So I don't know who wrote the rules. But. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it sounds like just in our like materialistic kind of worldview that we like to make delineations about like every single friggin' thing. And so whoever is creating these like shows has, wants to create a delineation between like things that have quote unquote practical function and then things that are. Uh, quote unquote purely artistic right exactly it's very interesting and at first uh, before you did the pepper mills you were doing all bowls right 
bowls. Yeah. Yeah. I started out thinking I would make I would make eating bowls out of wood, but our culture doesn't really equate wood with um, eating out of. It's we're just kind of we're not used to that. I think I missed the boat by a couple hundred years. Um, Why use wood when you can use that beautiful, beautiful plastic? (laughs) (laughs) So shiny and light and durable and just made in like the billions of pounds at each second. It's just like so, so beautiful. I don't know. I don't know why anyone would want to use anything besides plastic, but yeah, I mean, I obviously I'm eating out of all plastic over here. Yeah, and uh, for those for those who may not know, like your your entire abode, your entire dwelling is like very much like re- revolves around wood. Like you have so much wood everywhere. You got that beautiful like wooden uh, fence that's like artistic too. So that actually, your wooden fence is like fine art and craft art simultaneously. Ooh, that does straddle the line, right? Yeah. Because it, pr- yeah. it provides the function of being a fence and providing privacy. But what you did is you decided to make make it into craft art simultaneously with like the beautiful wavy uh, kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen the architect Antoni Gaudi, the Italian architect who did, uh, mm. he, Sagrada Familia is like his kind of like opus uh, piece of architecture, but he designed buildings like to imitate nature. So like the lines are all very like curvy and wavy. And that's reminds me of the lines that you used in your fence. Nice. Is that kind of what you were like, what were you thinking when you made the fence? Were you just kind of doing whatever came to your mind or did you have like a vision? Um, I mean, I guess, um, water. Yeah. That's what I see it, man. Intention. Yeah. That's interesting to say that I am, I've been doing that now. That's been a theme of mine is blurring the lines. Blurring the lines between what we think is, or as defined culturally, it's this or this. Yeah, it's like the difference between being an either or and a and person. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This and. For sure. And didn't um, you, you made like your sink, if I'm not mistaken, or your counter? Didn't you design yeah, that yourself? Both. Yeah. So, so you actually have a wooden sink with like a varnish? So I have the wooden sink. It needs the varnish and it needs to be mounted. I've created it. It just needs the, the last step of being finished and installed. Uh, that sounds so cool. So when you need something for your house, you just like make it out of wood, basically. <laughs> Oftentimes. And like, what better, you know, what better thing to make something out of than wood? Yeah, you could argue that it's like the finest. I mean, metal is really useful, too. But there's something about wood. Wood is, uh, you know, you, you, you manipulate the wood but you don't actually change the essence of the wood. You use it right. as, as nature makes it. Exactly. Yeah, and keeping a live edge on it, or just, it has a grounding earthy element to it that bringing it into a place of, you know, a dwelling place really, it, it, it carries an essence with it. It has a feel to it. It emanates, even though the water's gone from it. So we call it dead. 
um, it's still very much alive. For sure, man. And it's also like it's it's such medicine to to enter into a place where like everything is made out of wood instead of you know like a, like metal or, or plastic or whatever because we're so inundated with all that stuff anyways like most of us yeah. people like you know you go to your job you spend we spend so much time in front of screens we live in a very synthetic world in so many ways and so it's like uh yeah the wood is just like medicine for the soul because it is an artifice in that it is you're creating the the piece or the function or the the art but um but yeah like the it's not synthetic because it's the essence of it is comes from nature herself unless we go to ikea they are doing the synthetic wood thing which is a damn shame but damn i didn't even know they were doing that well you know they're just gluing a bunch of sawdust together and then putting a thin veneer over the top so it looks like wood but it's like half plastic oh damn I know, right? That's rough. (laughs) (laughs) But what are you going to do when there's seven and a half billion of us and we all want um, a nice bookshelf and a nice desk? And, like, we'd have to cut all the trees down for everybody to have, like, a real nice, real piece of wood. So we have big corporations like IKEA that provide that to us. Today's episode of Barbarian Noetics is brought to you by the ancient Chinese system of energy medicine known as Feng Shui. Feng Shui, keeping mirrors and houseplants in corners since the dawn of time. Literally the dawn of time because nature somehow practices exquisite Feng Shui, seemingly without even trying, but what is trying? Props to nature. Today's episode is also brought to you by The Lost Art of Hospitality That idea that the stranger who needs a helping hand Might in fact be the divine manifested in your presence Hospitality baby, let's bring it back Finally, today's episode is brought to you by The Oracle of Delphi bringing us the Delphic aphorism, Know Thyself, which was inscribed on the forecourt of the ancient temple of Apollo at Delphi. Socrates was inspired by the aphorism to later say, the unexamined life is not worth living. Thank you so much to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. Uh, Check them out uh, in your own mind, online, in books, uh, I'll leave it to you. Feng Shui, hospitality, Oracle of Delphi. What's up? Which otherwise would maybe just go to waste. True, yeah. So, 
even though it has it incorporates like the plastics which are petroleum products at least it is kind of like reusing this what could be considered like a waste material yeah definitely yeah so before you did portland pepper mills and I'm, i won't ask you to get into the nitty-gritty of it but you uh for like you you had a business also but it was completely different um and you decided to change your life path sort of and um move on from that business and start your own business and like you said at first it was designing wooden bowls and now it's uh evolved into this thriving business portland pepper mills um what if you can think back to that time i don't know if it was like 10 11 years ago something like that uh what inspired you to make that shift you had just mentioned screen time it was looking at i was done looking at screens it was too much for me i couldn't wake up and look at a screen for eight more hours and feel good about myself at the end of the day and i mean i suppose in some sense i could have because i kept doing it even though i knew it wasn't good for me or my creativity anymore and i pushed it and sometimes the hardest part about stepping out is just actually stepping out and moving away from something um because then there's then it's the question of then what comes up um and so i kind of had to just trust that i would answer that at some point and not before i walked away so i i walked away from looking at a screen for eight hours a day yeah it's like very much like an energetic shift because you're like uh just the the vibes the vibe difference between doing your work all through a screen versus doing your work with your hands with the wood surrounded by wood in your workshop uh on an energetic level that's like i mean can't get much more kind of dichotomous than that yeah and i from a young kid on i always i was always thriving when i was in the room building my legos or um you know just playing ball with my brothers or sisters in the backyard um but whenever i was the intelligence in my hands is far always like my cognitive intelligence and so just honoring that within myself and realizing that perhaps uh, my best medicine for the world is through using my hands and i didn't know how that would look or what exactly like the manifestation of that would be but it all seemed to work out so here we are yeah man it worked out brilliantly <laughs> and now how, how many you know your your creations are like spread throughout the world far and wide you know so it's like uh, it's got an impact beyond just your own self and your own livelihood yeah that is that is nice to think about um and that people they really have relationships with the pieces and they you know it changes the way people cook and they become um like integral parts of their life which feels good to create something that has a life of its own yeah it's like when you throw a pebble in a pond and it there's the initial splash but then the ripples that continue until the shore and then even they continue on forever after that we just can't see it with our eyes it's kind of like yeah. that like when you when you build the grinder and then sell the grinder it's like you're tossing that pebble in the pond and then that grinder continues to live on 
and ripple forth through time and inspire <laughs> like it inspires mindfulness and it might inspire nutrition and it might inspire conversations right. so um that's you know because you are a very mindful person and so it must be a nice feeling to know that you are contributing to like greater mindfulness in the world through your art through your livelihood yeah we're all doing our part we all got our role to fill yeah, we all do. It's just I don't think everyone knows their role. I think that's the hard part is I think we all deep down we know that we each have a role to fill, but the hard part is discovering what that role is and then and then following through on it when you do discover it. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily easy. It takes a lifetime. And we have all these other pressures of like in the modern world it's like you're kind of like you you if you have like a family some people don't even have families and they're on, on their own from the very beginning. But if you do have a family, it's like as soon as you leave the family unit, like you're kind of, on, you're, there's no safety net really for you. So you have to like figure out how to, you know, generate enough green frog skins to have a roof right. over your head and to eat. And there's no like tribe that's going to have your back, you know, right. like if, if, if you decide to like, well, I'm just going to pursue my passion of like, I want to be a puppeteer and I just want to, you know, make puppet shows. Like, then you also have to think about how you're going to monetize the puppet shows so that you have a roof over your head, you know? Right. So that, that, that added pressure, I think, is like, it's definitely detrimental to people really discovering their true, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term, I guess, purpose. Or their yeah, it's, it's competitive. And it's not necessarily competitive because it's competitive, but it's competitive because there's so many of us. Um, all trying to like figure out how we fit into the system versus if you know say there was a village of a couple hundred people well like the roles are kind of everybody has their role because everybody's needed and but like with the division of labor now it's <laughs> and like how incredibly like niched out everything is and the amount of options it just it's not so straightforward anymore and then trying to find purpose within that can it can get confusing sometimes i feel like when i'm having discussions about like kind of like the woes of the world or like things that you know people want to see change it kind of all always boils down to um just straight up too many human beings like overpopulation because each individual human is we're so complex and we're so like we have a lot of needs, you know, our, our uh, Maslow yeah. hierarchy of needs. Like every single individual human right. has super complex needs and social needs right. and romantic <laughs> needs. And we all right. want to find true love and we all want like our lives to be like the story. And so it's like, yeah, there's so many of us now. So it right. brings me to a question I have for you. Like, do you think that it is possible for us to craft a world that sustains this amount of, of humans with like, and assuming that the population growth continues on the curve that it's going now, or maybe it slows a little bit, but it's still growing. Is it possible that we can design a world where each individual uh, has, finds their own role and, and lives like a fulfilled, purposeful life? Um, or, or is that kind of like a pipe dream given just the sheer numbers? Well, gosh, I sure like to hope that it's not a pipe dream. Um, <laughs> I like to think it's possible. You know, I the first thing that comes to mind is um, 
you know, it would be a much different way of life. One that's so foreign in some degree, especially to like an America, Western American, that perhaps it seems, you know, not even feasible, but just a lot, a lot less. And like, what's, what's actually necessary and, um, and what's the goal at that point? I mean, it would require, I think it would require a lot more um, working with people in the capacity, in like a survival capacity, where we're more interdependent upon the people that we actually know. Because we're still all very interdependent on each other. Um, it's just like a blind interdependence. Hmm. Like we need each other. We just like, we don't interact with the people who we trade with. I go to the grocery store and I fill up my cart and I don't interact with, you know, the farmers that I'm trading with versus like, if the farmer is in the village that I'm trading with, well then I know the farmer. And then like, yeah, it's just in, in, I feel like it also, it like, it dehumanizes the whole system a little bit when I don't interact with the people that I'm dependent upon. Mm. And then it kind of just is like, well, is this even real? And it's so easy to just um, forget that there's people behind every aspect of it when it's, you know, order this on the internet or this, or I need this, or make a phone call and talk to this customer service, you know, person here or there. It's just, it becomes, I feel like it's becoming a little robotic because that that human touch is gone and it's still there behind this behind the screens let's say behind the screens instead of behind the scenes but like but we lose it and like that's what we need ultimately to like really keep going and and to create something is that human touch and so i have hope but i also feel like it would just require such a a radically different way of doing it that i feel like the only way it's going to happen is if we're like, you know, forced into it. Yeah, the answer, it's like, it, it is certainly possible to, you know, to have this amount of people and have everyone live fulfilled lives, but it would require for each individual person to make a conscious choice to not consume as much so that there's more to share. Yeah. And our like our desires are hijacked from pretty much the, the time we're born. Like, and I'm talking <laughs> I'm talking now in the modern world. I'm not necessarily. It's always been like this, but pretty much like in in the modern age, the technosphere we live in. Like, yeah, from the moment you're born, you start to be conditioned, and your de- your desire, your dreams get hijacked by um, commercial interests who yeah. have a vested interest in you know the frog skins that you're eventually going to earn. They want those. And, you know, even when you're super young, they want your parents to buy the stuff. So it's just all about, like, how can we hijack, how can we hijack these dreams to generate frog skins for us? And I think that's why um, so many, why it's, why it does seem really difficult (laughs) to imagine, you know, like millions and millions of, we'll just say Americans, like, wake up tomorrow and are just like, you know what, I, I can probably like be totally happy and feel completely fulfilled with like one-eighth of the material possessions that I have um, mm-hmm. because it's like we're, we're kind of hypnotized to like identify with our material possessions. Like 
mm. e- express yourself. So like wear Gucci because that's an expression of yourself, you know, instead right. of just like uh, being your own expression. And, you know, I do think like, I mean, you live in Portland, Oregon, and that's, it's kind of like one of the epicenters of creative expression. So I think probably in, you know, in your city, you do see a lot of individuals that are kind of, um, kind of like sloughing off the status quo and are kind of creating their own unique expressions. Uh, but I just, I wish that that was like at a critical mass of humans. Not, I'm not sure it's there yet. Yeah. Yeah, we're still inundated with it though. I don't care where we live in this country. It's just, it's hard to get away from. Um, always, there's always some, there's always another comfort, <laughs> comfort well, thing yeah. that can be had, you know? And it, it sneaks in too, because like, ah, oh, this gets me so worked up. So it's like, one of my, one of the banes of my existence is like the condo plexes and like gentrification and development and how, uh, it's like these beautiful urban centers get like, I'm using the word hijacked a lot, but they get hijacked and all of a sudden they become just like these mills for like, for condos. And then it's all about just like filling the condos. And like that gets me because it's like these investors that invest in these buildings, they are like profiting off of the fact that the city has built itself into somewhere that's desirable, you know, because cities are just groups of people. Culture is just groups of people. So to make an Austin, Texas, to make a Portland, Oregon, it's like, it's just people being creative and really like, you know, harnessing that human spirit to create like this, this nice environment that's welcoming and attractive. And then like these vultures like are like (laughs) circling over it. And they're like, "Mm, I see there's some culture developing there and the land is still cheap. Mm. Let's buy it all up and build condo plexes. (laughs) And unfortunately, like it works because people need roofs over their heads, you know? Yeah, it comes back to the population. Yeah. Like it it works because like, yeah, there's a housing crunch in Portland because there's so many people. Well, and it's just kind of like, I feel like the beast kind of just like moves around, you know? So like if it was San Francisco for a long time until it's like, San Francisco got so gentrified and so expensive it like couldn't it couldn't make itself any more expensive it's at like the upper right. limit so then those these vulture investors which a lot of times they're not even American a lot of times they're like uh, really wealthy like Chinese or um, uh-huh. Saudi Arabian Middle Eastern like investors and they're just like they have so many billions of dollars that they don't even know what to do with it they're right. like, we don't even know right. what to do with these billions of dollars like right. what are we going to do with them we want we want these you know, we, we have to put them somewhere so that we continue to amass more and more wealth. And so right. it's like these these land projects are just right. these like repositories of wealth for these like foreign interests. And yet it's like when you boil it down to like the, the street level, like the individual level, it's just like just like human beings like just usually start, you know, usually the condo plexes are filled with like people in their 20s that are like just starting off. And, they're yeah. you know, there's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they want to make make something of the world but it's like even the way that those condo plexes are advertised it's always like you want to live here to express yourself and then it's got like cool like there's all these images of like hipster hipster dudes with glasses and like girls with like skinny jeans and everyone like looks like it's like we're living life to the fullest at mark taylor condo plex (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it just like really gets me man yeah 
Uh, yeah. The last time I went well, back uh, to Portland to visit, it was like, I felt like every street corner I went to to visit like my favorite food trucks and stuff, it was yeah. always like, oh, now there's a huge yeah. condo plex there. It's like, yep. just in the past 10 years, it's very, yep. very mind-blowing. It's still, it's still happening. It's, yeah. And it's getting pushed further and further out as well, which, yeah, it's just, it's the new, new. But so like in, if we return back to the more optimistic viewpoint of what you were saying, like it doesn't have to be like that. So there's... Yeah, and I think one of the questions that we have to begin in, in my life, you know, I'm with this question in, in many different mediums, but when is enough enough? And how much is enough? Because like culturally enough is never enough, going back to like how the um, condos are being built. Like enough is never enough. But like enough is enough. Right. And like when when is enough enough? And how much is too much? Cause like excess is like Yeah, I mean Well really since the dawn of time, like uh excess has been like the status symbol. And I think right. in a lot of ways that's still the case where it's like you know, maybe like a thousand years ago, it was like the nobles would have excess and that was their status symbol as nobles. Like, look at all this excess. But now it's like everyone wants to be a noble. Like everyone wants to like live like kings. And it's like, it's almost like seen as like, that's like the baseline expectation. And it's like, how do we go about shifting that? Exactly, yeah. I mean, like if, if it would be fun to do a comparison to like, like we are kind of, all nobles in some degree like compared to how the nobles used to live um 500 years ago like <laughs> oh dude it'd be i wonder if like even like middle class lower class like is still loads above like how the nobles used to live like what we have available at the drop of a dime and the comforts that we have available even if we're not well off per se is like over the top and that's all of us yeah, like someone who's like just barely above the poverty line in the U.S. is living way better than like a king was like six, yeah. 500 years ago just because we yeah. have like refrigeration. Right. <laughs> just that alone. Right. Like most people have a refrigerator right. and a freezer and that is like uh, uh. If, we, if you went back in time that would be like um, just even beyond. It would be like seen as this like gift from the gods, you know. Uh-huh. You could, take, Absolutely. you could take a refrigerator and a freezer, and if you had a generator and some gasoline, and you went back in time with that bad boy and fired it up, <laughs> you could literally start a religion, dude. Because people would think that you were yeah. like an alien god. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I've been watching Star Trek, and it's like whenever they visit a new planet um, that is far less developed than they are, they always think that Picard's a god because, like. You know, he's the Picard, but he's like, no, I'm not. We just, you know, and then he'll give it examples of like, well, one time you lived in caves and then you, you know, discovered how to build thatched roof houses and you keep progressing. But it's a funny concept. I'm really glad we both Star Trek into this podcast. It makes me happy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's been a very cosmic theme in my life. So I've, I, you know, I used to watch Star Trek when I was a kid, right? And I saw it through the eyes that I saw it through, and um, my new so my new body of work, I'm making globes, and I'm not making Earth globes. I'm making um, all different planets. 
cool. from all different um, galaxies and not just like they're they're abstract globes, but like using the roots to create globes. But like getting really inspired by um, anything that has to do with like space and like the vastness of what actually is going on. Yes. Um, and not just like what I perceive with my own eyes as I walk around my studio every day, but just like really feeling into that cosmic space because like that's kind of like that's the space that I need to exist in in order to like have hope and be inspired because um, that space exists simultaneously even the way that the mer- the earth is moving through space um, basically like in a spiral at 25,000 miles an hour like we're moving in so many dimensions um, that's like also what's really happening too and I just I can't forget this stuff and so watching Star Trek helps me remember <laughs> what, <laughs> what's probably also going on out there you know yeah, you know, that point made me think of another thing where it's like, you know, so uh, going back to the idea of um, like some sort of critical mass of simplification and less consumerism as we know it, it doesn't mean at all that there would be like a downtick in terms of like uh, quality of life or even like technology. Because like if you right. think of technology, like what is technology? Technology is just a way to do something. It's like, it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily involve wire and fiber optics and electricity. Like uh, the Aboriginal Australians, they used to communicate through trees. They, they said that trees were like uh, telephone towers and that you could, if you know what you were doing, you could communicate like through one tree with an uh, I- individual on the other wow. side of the country through another tree. And this is something mm-hmm. that they did. It was part of their everyday life. And also like when they would get in circles and... Um, and didgeridoo for hours and hours like that was they were literally riding like the the rainbow dream snake of the dream time like yeah. that was that was a technology you know it was a technology for uh greater like um for for that cosmic awareness that you're speaking of yeah. and so it's like yeah like by by you know like we've gone so far down this rabbit hole of of the materialistic worldview and it's given us like like, like you say, like we all live like kings, basically. It's given us physical powers that are essentially magical. Like the fact that we have these rare earths in our pockets that are like, you know, can give you any piece of information at the drop of a dime. and can, they're, they're like our trees. You know, we use them to yeah. communicate with people uh-huh. on the other side of the planet. But there's other ways of, of going about that. And it's like, yeah, like we, we all... I feel like I bring up quantum physics on every single podcast, but... <laughs> Well, who doesn't want to talk about quantum <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's the thing is that now it's been, even if you're like a kind of a scientific method naysayer skeptic, like it's been demonstrated through quantum physics that like the basic building blocks of existence are complete and utter mysteries and they're yes. flickering in and out of existence and we're all, mm-hmm. un- we're all like united in the web of the quantum field and we haven't even figured out like what dark matter and dark energy really is yet right. and it's like that if we can tap that technology you know like think of right. and I think um, I'm hopeful that like with uh, so it's like society's making huge headways in terms of like with uh, THC and marijuana which is like definitely a consciousness expanding uh, substance 
and that's right. that's becoming more and more mainstream and legalized. I think as psychedelics <clears throat> become more and more mainstream and legalized, like psilocybin, LSD, uh, the LSA from the morning glory seeds, all these plant medicines. I mean, already ayahuasca has like exploded into the, the right. collective consciousness. But like that, that does give me some hope because I feel like <clears throat> as more and more people enter this inner world and utilize these plant technologies, which is really what right. they are, to access right. these uh, cosmic consciousness, uh-huh. like we can you know, we can really like, yeah, think outside the box and yeah. Yeah. And we are so connected and, and the I, me, mind disappear and they go away and it, yeah, it, you know, it's that space where, um, it's not me against you or this is mine and this is yours. It's just <laughs> all that stuff kind of fades away. It's, it's a timeless space where we're just existing and Honestly, I just feel like if people would just unplug from like the news and cable news just for like, oh man, because that's like, so we're talking about like these beautiful forces of like the plant technologies that are like opening people's minds and are like, you know, creating cosmic consciousness. I feel like the, the, uh, the network news shows and the 24 seven like ticker tapes, it's like, they're yeah. almost fighting the opposite battle where they're trying, they are. they're just like 24 seven working as hard as they can. There's ton like millions and millions and billions of yeah. dollars behind it and they're just working to like essentially what it is 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 they're they're uh tweaking and triggering the adrenal glands of people watching and so oh, people oh are God. getting these dumps of adrenaline through each you know like that's how why they do right. that crazy music like dun 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 right wolf blitzer like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and it's like constantly one thing after the next and even if it's like something totally ridiculous like breaking news a cat right. was rescued from a tree but it's like dun, 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 and they're just and you know like that's what that's what is really sad about the fact that like you know so uh, there's like the stereotype of like the elderly you know people that are just like glued into like Fox News or CNN or MSNBC and it's like that the reason why I think is because it, it is like this kind of like addictive self uh, fulfilling cycle of like you get that dump of adrenaline it's kind of like some excitement in your life so it's like yeah. why would I want to give up this excitement like it's just they keep feeding it to me right. <laughs> but yeah. like you know if you could tear someone away from network TV and put them in a sweat lodge and give them like uh, half half an eighth of, of mushrooms <laughs> like you know like I, right. gu- I guarantee you they would watch this right. I guarantee you Yeah. you know they'd yeah. be like whoa you know you, they, just to get that just to like, it's so hard Just to, to feel. Like, to feel, yeah. It's so hard to like when you're when you're in it, when you yourself are in it. It's really hard to get out of it. Like you need somehow some way to like get outside yourself and see yourself from that like third view, yeah. that bird's eye view. And I think yeah, that's, exactly, yeah, that's like the gift that that psychedelics give us. But not just psychedelics, also like meditation and yoga and like uh, you're like probably you experience transcendent states I would imagine through your artwork yeah definitely what's like the craziest um have you ever had like a full-blown like altered state of consciousness like through working on one of your pieces um kind of recently one the first one that comes to mind I was at the lathe and I mean so often I'm in just an absolute cloud of um Dust, wood dust, right? Really quick, just I think people might not know what a lathe is. Could you just really quickly describe what it is? Oh, the lathe is, this is ancient technology. The Egyptians were turning at the lathe. Um, That's how, 
that's how I do my work. So basically, it's like a potter wheel. It's what I mount the piece of tree to, except um, it doesn't, you know, a potter's wheel. It'll sit down, and it will be between your legs. This is on its side, and it spins really fast. So all the lathe does is spin the piece of wood, and then I hold a knife or a, or a gouge or what have you, a blade up to the piece of wood, and since it's spinning, wherever I make contact with at one point it cuts 360 degrees all the way around wow. so it's a pretty quick action based thing um, and then using that using the blade to manipulate the wood is how shape happens and that's how <clears throat> round things are turned or bowls or what have you so that's the lathe so I was at the lathe and oftentimes I'll sand a piece of wood as well it's not I mean which is just another form of cut and you know all the sawdust just goes into the air and I'm in a I'm in a half car garage that's my studio at 10 by 20 so not that large and um, I'll close the door and I'll have my I'll have a respirator on so it's okay to breathe but you know if there's just sometimes it gets quite thick with sawdust in there <laughs> I would imagine yeah <laughs> floating in the air and so I was turning away and I don't know what changed, but I i think it was somehow just the way the light was hitting some of the sawdust. <clears throat> and I stopped, and, and I looked all around me, and I was no longer in my studio turning and standing wood. I was like, I was in the cosmos, and every little piece of sawdust was a star. And there must have been millions of pieces of sawdust all around me in every direction I turned. Wow. Um, and it was it was just that feeling of that that pure consciousness state where it was like, wait, but this is this is actually where I am. Wow. Like I am like just standing here amongst like, you know, billions and billions of stars, and like I don't I don't know I am, and I am just like. And it was funny, the scale of it, you know, like a speck of sawdust, right? And then I'm this big thing, but like, somehow it just made sense that like, I'm like, this is what's actually going on and I'm nothing. And, and it was a, it was a beautiful feeling, you know, it was one of those moments where everything is um, in just in beautiful perspective. And I was just grateful to be standing there and, and just observing it and watching it all spin around and it was all moving too right because there's yeah. such small tiny pieces everything was moving and it was it was very alive that still has I mean it was and I don't know it was one of those moments where time goes away um, I don't know if I stood there for 5 minutes or 20 minutes or whatever it doesn't matter but like that lasting that feeling has just had lasting impacts I think that was late this summer that that happened and now whenever I'm in that state I see it I see it again and I'm and I like I can you know I can draw on that feeling and um it's a super ancient kind of like practice of shamans like across the world from all different cultures to like focus in on one thing for just like uh it, you know hours and hours and hours like even just like banging two stick banging two rocks together you know for just like hours and hours just narrowing your your focus and your consciousness to like one specific action and through that there's um this transcendent state that is like um that is like uh 
come upon or blossoms forth. And it sounds like maybe that's kind of like what happened to you here, where that uh, working at the lathe and that intense focus became almost like a shamanic technique. And um, through that, you, you literally broke into another dimension. Yeah. Yeah. Because there are that many stars in the sky. I know. <laughs> I know. It's not like this crazy exaggeration to, to say right. that. Like, it's literally infinite, dude. Like, right. what does that even mean? Yeah, we can't. It's it's so big, we can't even wrap our heads around it. Which is like, that's it. Not we can't wrap my head around any of it. And that's my life, and I can't wrap my head around it. But that's all I try to do is make sense of things and wrap my head around it, so I can thrive in my business, right? And it's like, oh, I just feel like our collectively, our energies are so misdirected to where if we actually like. If we would direct our energies to like not destruct anymore, and I mean, it's just it's such a foreign concept because like I don't, you know, we didn't collectively we didn't intend to like be where we're at and do what we're doing today to planet Earth or our home. Like that, I don't think that was our intention, but like that's just how it happened. So to like think about a different way to do it it's like well nothing was done wrong and like so therefore there's not like a right way to do it it's just kind of what's happening yeah it was like what started happening and then the momentum started carrying it and like more and more people started following through with that momentum and then it became this unstoppable kind of process and Right now, that unstoppable process is literal consumption. So each individual is consuming, but then uh, humanity is just like at a incredibly, like always acceleratingly rapid pace, like consuming all the natural resources on the planet. So right. it's like that's that's the momentum. And the only thing about it is like how you say that that wasn't the intention. I want to believe that, man, but the thing is that the, um, the Puritans that came over, the first people that started uh, committing genocide on the Native Americans, they believed because their holy book says that the animals and the plants of the earth are here to serve man, and man has dominion over the plants. I, I forget the exact quote in the Bible, but right. it's like, yeah, man exactly. has dominion over the fish in the sea and the, the animals of land. And that literally yeah. makes me feel like sick to my stomach, dude. Like when I hear people quote that to like explain like why it's totally okay to like eat industrial meat and just like, you know, like right. just do whatever you want to do to make it work. Cause <clears throat> that's like your, it's like this manifest destiny idea. Like that's like your birthright as a human. Right. So it's like, you know, and that unfortunately, like that consciousness of like, man has dominion over the earth has like it's 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 kind of like uh unfortunately it's like ballooned out of control and like expanded right. into every single corner and yeah even exactly. like proselytizing like these beautiful right. you know isolated tribes like they're these people that go in there and tell them that their their gods are worthless and that they have to worship this white god that, right. that again believes that, that man has dominion over all animals and plants and fish and it like flies in the face of the animistic more shamanic perspective of that we're all connected and that everything has a spirit you know yeah so it's like so there's there's yeah. that too <laughs> yeah it takes us it takes us out of um you know it takes us out of par being part of it and it puts us on a pedestal above it but like 
and then we're looking down at it and like now we have ownership of it and now we're pissing on it and that's our home and like you know I don't I don't piss on the floor in my home like I go to I go you know well, <laughs> I guess I have like hey welcome to Barbarian Noetic so we don't piss on the floor of our homes so I'm talking to John Finkelwacky about where he pisses right now so you go into a separate room do you have another separate room that you go I, yeah right okay, I, cool. I guess I piss into a bucket that the floor <laughs> Yeah, man, though, but I, I totally understand the point you're making. Like, somehow we've, you know, like, it's kind of like the whole thing of, like, landfills. Like, why are landfills, why do they work? Because it's, like, this magical thing of, like, you have all this this substance, this stuff that is there, and you don't want it to be there anymore because you're done with it. You're done consuming. You know, you're done, <laughs> done consuming the pack, the, the bag of popcorn. You've already opened up the speaker. You've opened up the computer. You've, so you have this stuff, and you don't want it anymore. So you just throw it in the garbage, and then this truck comes once a week and takes it all away. And it's like, it's no longer there. Like, out of sight, out of mind, you know? No. But it, but it is still there. And like really quick, I want to I want to share this story of um, so I, I actually lived with the um, um, Aboriginal Australi- Australians in the Chintapurda community for like three months um, when I was studying in Sydney. Um, after I finished my studies, I went and lived with the Chintapurda people. Yeah. It was like uh, eighty miles southeast of Alice Springs, so it was like in the dead center of the country where there was like it was the least amount of light pollution I've ever experienced in my life like the mm. the degree of the Milky Way was just like so incredibly mind-boggling like when you don't have any light pollution at all like if you look at a map of um planet earth at night you know how you see that satellite shots of like the earth at night and like the east coast of the U.S. is just like this huge artificial light but right. like, if you look in the center of Australia because Australia all the population is pretty much on the east coast and then there's Perth on the west coast but the whole interior of the whole continent, and the continent is the same size as the contiguous U.S., is oh, all, wow. it's all just empty desert, mostly empty. There are uh, Aboriginal folks that still live in their ancestral homelands like throughout the, that, this, this spot. But, yeah, it's just like no light pollution, man. It blew my freaking mind. So, anyway, so I was wow. the... I was like the lifeguard and the youth uh, sports coordinator for like three months out there in this like isolated community. And so, like, I remember uh, there was... There was this store on the... So, unfortunately, the, they, they've been put in reservations just the same as the Native Americans, which is wow. incredibly, like, brutal and tragic because the Aboriginal Australians are naturally nomadic <clears throat> in that they naturally move, you know, the, the idea of, like, walkabout. Like, they're right. so at home uh, in their environment, and they can make do... I mean, talk about living simply, you know, they, they, they've developed for like 70,000 years like before mm. the Europeans discovered Australia because it was literally like its own you know like uh, laboratory of like human growth and right. it's like this beautiful beautiful complex and, and another thing not many people know is that there was like dozens and dozens and dozens of different Aboriginal Australian peoples so you can't just say just like how there's so many different Native American tribes there was all these like so many different types of um, Aboriginal Australian peoples like the river people and the jungle people and the desert people and you go from there and they all had their own different languages and then different dialects within that language it's really interesting but anyways maybe this will be a whole other podcast where I talk about that but the reason I brought it up is so I was uh, managing the pool you know and I'm like Mr. Mr. Western American pants and I'm like well you can't litter you know you can't litter at the pool so it's like that's a rule you can't litter and I remember this one dude, he was, he was this, uh, like, maybe in his 30s, and um, 
he so they had this like horrible store where like the it was like the one store that's like run by like this white person and it's just like the aboriginal folks they get like a certain amount of money from the government every month and so basically yeah. the products at the store were like marked up like five thousand percent because they knew that they just would you know they just get this this money and it doesn't like they're they're kind of obviously they're they're a little bit disgruntled with the situation you know what i mean for obvious yeah. reasons so it's like fuck it you know i don't care i'll take this money i'll spend ten dollars i was literally like ten dollars for a coke like it's like so gross anyways so this guy had this this uh two liter thing of coke and he finished it drank it all and then he just threw the two liter on the floor on the ground right in front of me beside the pool and so i was like i was like oh like you don't i don't remember exactly what i said Uh, obviously i was like i wasn't uh so bold as to be like no littering but I was kind of like oh like I guess I'll pick that up because we want to try to keep the pool clean or something like that and he looked at me I'll never forget it man he was like it doesn't matter if I throw it here or if you take it and throw it somewhere else it's already Mm. there it's already (laughs) there like basically like and he was really like looking at me like you white man like you brought this here and now you're going to tell me that I can't throw this on the ground Right. Like this, you already brought it here. It's already here. It doesn't matter if you like. They did. They had a landfill that was like two miles outside the little uh, reservation dwelling, and like, and that's you know that's where all the garbage went. But that that really stuck with me because it's just like uh, that dude got it. You know, he understood like that right. it's not out of sight, out of mind. That all right. the stuff that's being made, and like now we're you know we're finally starting to realize like the impact on the oceans and stuff. Because the plastic doesn't go away. It just breaks down oh, into these little God. tiny particles of plastic. And, you know, then you have the Great Pacific Ocean Patch, and then there's a bunch of other... Or garbage patch, and you have... There's, like, a bunch of different other gyres of garbage, like, around the world oceans. But, right. But what to do with it, right? So, like, what what to do with it, then? Well, there's this one really positive story of... And I'm going to... I don't remember the guy's name. So I think his first name is Boyan, and I think he's Scandinavian, if I'm not mistaken. But if you Google, like, Boyan Ocean Cleanup, like, B-O-Y-A-N was his first name, he built this, like, amazing device that um, it, it, like, funnels, it, it floats along the ocean, like, in the, in the garbage patch, and it funnels all the garbage into, like, um, there's this mechanism by which it's, like, all funneled into this receptacle. And he said that, like, they... It can they they can like run on their own and they can build like more and more and more of them, and he said that if he um, I, I heard him on a podcast and he said if he if he if the project progresses as he wants to progress as he would like it to progress that he could actually completely clean up the Great Pacific garbage patch by like twenty forty or something like that. Wow! Because like in that way it's kind of like the ocean currents they kind of gather all the garbage for us. So right. if we can find a way to then you know, to sequester that garbage from these, this, this gyre that's been so generously <laughs> created by the, the currents <laughs> of the ocean. Then what he does is he takes that, all that plastic that the machines recover and he creates things with them. Like he makes like bracelets and stuff like that. And he's going to start making shoes with it. And then he sells it like, as like, this is like ocean garbage stuff. Wow. So he can like, you know, charge a little bit more because people think that's really cool and they want to wear right. like a bracelet that was made out of the garbage from the Great Pacific garbage patch. So that's just like, you know, there are like really positive stories like that too. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But that's like, you know, that guy, he took ownership of it. He wasn't just like out of sight, out of mind. So 
you know, it's like take, it starts with like realizing that yeah, it's like everything you use is is gonna stick around. <laughs> yeah, it's so easy the out of sight, out of mind thing, you know, to clean up, right? I'm gonna clean up, and what cleaning up usually involves is throwing away. But yeah, it just goes into another place. And I mean, you can like organize your life so that most of your waste is recyclable. So that's like something that you can do at least. Yeah, 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 yeah. We can minimize minimize footprints and consumables, and um, yeah, it's not that difficult as well. I feel like if we continue to, um, if we really put all of our like collective energy into alternative energies like solar power and whatnot, um, uh, hydraulic power, and all that good stuff. Like, and then if we could, you know, run our recycling plants on that clean power, like, then we really would actually have, like, genuine recycling. Because unfortunately right now, like, the right. recycling involves enormous amounts of uh, fossil fuel energy to do the recycling. Right. Which right. is kind of like, that's like what the naysayers always point to. Like, there's people that I know in my life that don't recycle at all, and they're like, well, it doesn't matter anyway, it's just going to be fossil blah, blah, blah. And it's like, <laughs> even though that is like a decent point, it's like so depressing. I can't live like that. I have to, yeah. I have to still try to recycle as much as I can. <laughs> right. Yeah. I got to keep the head above water to some degree and have some belief and faith. Yeah. It's like, just keep moving forward, you know? Totally. Yeah. Well, listen, Jonathan, we've, uh, we've done like an hour and 15 minutes, if you can believe it. This little time oh, vortex. Wow. Yeah, it was a little time vortex for sure. <laughs> and um, I really appreciate you spending the time to come on this podcast. And I really hope that you're a repeat guest. Yeah, I would love to be, definitely. So we can check back in with you in a few months and see where you're at with your projects. And um, yeah, is there, uh, before I let you go, is there um, anything specifically that you'd like the listeners to know about that you're working on right now? Or would you like to plug uh, your business or social media or any of that stuff? Um, just let's not forget to crank our heads and look up at the sky at night and realize where we are we don't know <laughs> and if, <laughs> if people want to um, learn more about Portland Pepper Mills and possibly support the business uh, how do they do that www.portlandpeppermill.com um, and we're going to give a, we're going to give a coupon code out for all of the listeners so while you're making your order in the coupon code box type in grind g-r-i-n-d and then numerically 410 and that will give you 10% off nice grind g-r-i-n-d 410 you got it coupon code for barbarian noetics listeners <laughs> that's what's up <laughs> alright man well um, listen I really appreciate it again and uh, it was always good chatting with you and we'll catch up again in a few months sounds like a plan alright peace
Oh,